Back in February, a group of recreational fishermen trolling 12 miles off the coast of Florida began charting toward a school of fish that had just popped up on their radar, or fish finder, whatever it is that they use. When they got to the location, they were disappointed to find out that there were actually no fish in the area. But that disappointment soon gave way to shock, however, when they realized that it wasn't a school of fish, but a capsized boat. And floating on top of the capsized boat was a man in a float. As they would find out later, his boat had capsized nearly two days before, and he had drifted over 100 miles without food or water. The fishermen immediately sprung into action, uh, pulling the boat within throwing distance and tossing the man a life preserver. After that, they were able to reel him in safely to the boat where uh, a few of the men reached down, grabbed him, and pulled him into the safety of the vessel. Once they reached the marina, uh, a news crew was actually waiting to interview the severely dehydrated, emaciated, and sunburnt man who was too weak to stand up. Uh, as he was being carted onto an ambulance and receiving an IV, they asked what he had learned from his harrowing experience. Well, he said, sometimes in life, you just got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. As I was floating out there, I realized if I was going to survive, I had to take my life into my own hands. It's pretty incredible, really. I saved myself. I grabbed that life preserver, and I saved myself. And when you can't count on anyone else in life, it's nice to know that you can count on yourself. That story was based very loosely on real events. And it was intended to be a joke. You'll get it later. <laughs> of course the man didn't say that last part. That would be absurd. That would be the height of arrogance. There's nothing heroic or noteworthy in the act of grabbing a life preserver. Uh, the man deserves as much credit for his rescue as a baby deserves for being born. And that is none. Well, so often in church we find ourselves acting in the very same way that that man did. And what I mean is this, we forget that our rescue from sin and suffering and the wrath of God was entirely God's doing. That God is the one who rescued. That we brought nothing to the table to save ourselves and that we were even more helpless than the man lost at sea. And yet, God loved us. So many of the problems which can plague us as Christians are rooted in this. That we forget the graciousness of God's grace toward us in Jesus Christ. Problems like pride and self-righteousness and hypocrisy, division and gossip, these are all signs of someone who has little to no understanding of the grace of God. Well, this morning, the Apostle Paul wants to make this very point clear to us, that someone is only made a Christian by God's grace. Through God's wonderful rescue plan, which he hatched, as we saw in chapter 1, before the foundation of the world. And last week, as we saw, it was the best bad news you'll ever hear. This is the best good news you will ever hear. 
So let's take a look at it together. Pick up with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Father, we praise your name. You are the God over all, and we praise you, and we thank you for the opportunity to hear from you, for the opportunity to worship you and to know you and to enjoy you, and to spend eternity basking in your presence. God, we pray that today would be a foretaste of that glorious inheritance that you have for the saints. Would you be among us? Would you empower me by your spirit to preach your truth? And would you give us all hearts to receive your truth, to submit to your truth, and to rejoice in your truth? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our first point this morning is a demonstration of mercy and of love. I said this week is the best good news you're ever going to hear. Uh, but this week is only the best good news that you're ever going to hear if you have accepted the truth that we covered last week, which was the very best bad news that you're going to hear. It took me a long time to come up with that. Well, what was it that we covered last week? Just very briefly, we're going to, we're going to re recap what that was. Uh, that though uh, Paul says you Christians before your conversion, were dead in your trespasses and sins and the way that you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, carrying out the lusts of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, he says, children destined for wrath, children of wrath. So, very briefly, what does that mean? He says that you, Christian, were spiritually dead. You weren't spiritually maimed. You weren't spiritually crippled. He says you were dead. And as we know, there is nothing that dead people can do to change the fact that they are dead. And spiritual death, what did that look like? Well, it looked like, as he said, following the course of this world. That in our spiritual death, we were actually morally corrupted. That we had a corrupted human nature inclined to sin. And that we were perfectly content in that. We never had a righteous thought of our own with regard to God. And so we're following the course of this world. We're carrying out the, the lusts of the flesh, the desires of the body and the mind. Heaping more condemnation upon ourselves for our rebellion against a holy and a righteous and a just God. So we're spiritually dead and under God's wrath. But praise God, that is not the end of the story. The very next verse are perhaps the two greatest words in the Bible. In verse 4. But God. <laughs> but God 
Who is this God that we're talking about? Well, Paul's going to describe him in, in two clauses. The first thing he says is that this God who is rich in mercy. Brothers and sisters, when you think about God, do you think of a God who has eternal storehouses full of mercy which he desires to bestow upon his children? Yes, he's a just God. Yes, he does punish sin, and yet he is a merciful God. And not only is he merciful, but it says, what's the next thing he says in verse 4? He says, because of the great love with which he loved us. So we have cause now. But God, who is eminently merciful, because of his great love with which he loved us. Again, is this the picture of God you have in your mind when you think of the all-powerful creator of the universe? A loving and merciful God. I keep coming back to this, but think about John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It says God so loved the world that he gave his Son. It doesn't say that God gave his Son in order so he could love the world. Think about that for a moment. You, while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, as you were pursuing the things of this world, as you were pursuing the kind of things that break your heavenly Father's heart, as you were violating his law and heaping condemnation onto yourself, proving yourself to be a child of wrath, it says here that God loved you. God cared for you. He loved you so much that he gave up that which was most precious to redeem you. His son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross at your place. What greater love is there than this? But God, who is rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love. So what did this God do in response to what we saw last week as the bad news? Remembering that we were in spiritual death, Paul says, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, incapable of helping ourselves, it says he made us alive. What greater need is there for a dead person than to be made alive? It's the same power which God used to raise Christ from the grave. He used, Christian, if you are in Christ this morning, he used that to raise you from spiritual death to newness of life. Not to get all doctrinal, but this is a very important concept that we want to make sure we have right. Uh, theologians will refer to this as the doctrine of regeneration. Uh, Paul calls it being made alive. Jesus refers to it as being born again. Listen, that, that connotation, born again, has taken on a lot of political connotations in our day. But we want to make sure that we define it as the scriptures do. So why don't we turn to, to John chapter 3. There's no slide for this. It's a long passage. So turn with me to John chapter 3. We're going we're gonna to look at this guy Nicodemus and see what Jesus has to say about regeneration. John chapter 3, 1 through 12. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, 
For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He's he's a teacher in Israel. He's a Pharisee. He knows his Old Testament. He is a well studied man. And he recognizes there's something about this Jesus guy. And yet he cannot figure it out. He comes, after all of the study of the Old Testament, he's looking at Israel's hope in the face. He's looking at the person whom all the prophets in the writings of the Old Testament point forward to. He's looking at the Messiah, the son of David, who is foretold looking at him right in the face. (laughs) And he calls him teacher. Why was Nicodemus so thick? Why was it that Nicodemus could not recognize the Son of God as he sat right before him? The answer is because Nicodemus was not yet born again. Nicodemus was yet spiritually dead. You see, there are certain things in life, the things of God, that is, that cannot be discerned through intelligence alone, no matter how intelligent you are. There are certain things in life that our unaided intellect cannot help us to understand. The things of God are spiritually discerned. We have a slide for this. Look at 1 Corinthians 2. Paul's going to say the exact same thing. Verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by who? By the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Well, here's Nicodemus's problem right here in verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You see, in our spiritual death, we cannot understand the things of God. 
God has to come in and graciously breathe new life into our hearts of stone and enable us to understand the things of God. God actually has to grant us faith. Think of your own life, Christian. I know you think I'm continuing to talk to you, Christian, and I'm referring to all the Christians in the room, but I was looking at you right there. Think of your own life, Christian. <laughs> Think about the time before your conversion as you were seeking the things of this world, as you didn't have a care in the world for God, pleasing God wasn't a concern of yours, as you were pursuing self, as you were trying to maximize your own pleasure, as you were doing whatever in the world you thought would make you happiest. And for you, that meant anything but knowing and loving the God of the universe. And then something happened. Something happened to you, and, and your desires began to change. And you find yourself gathered with a bunch of other people whose desires have changed on a Sunday morning, and you're, you're, you're in a room together, and you're, you're standing next to each other, and you... For some reason, you like them, even though you're very unlike many of them. And you're praying together. And you're singing praises to a God you can't see. And it strangely warms your heart with joy. And, and you're not exactly sure why that is. And, but you want to be here and you, you want to know this God. And you, you sit and listen to someone who's barely old enough to shave, bring you the word of God. <laughs> and you hear the word, and your heart, again, is strangely warm to the things of God. And you're wondering, what in the world is happening? I, I want to love God. I want to I love my neighbor. I want to serve my brothers and sisters in Christ. What's happened to me? I'm weird now. Well, what happened to you is that God made you alive. God has put his spirit into your heart. And he's given you a desire for the things of God. What a glorious truth. We've been made alive in Christ Jesus. What's the next verse? Let's look at verse 6. So God made us alive. He does two other things with us in verse 6. He raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I think what Paul's getting at here is he's just desiring to show us the richness of salvation. You know, salvation is not just a uh, get out of God's judgment. Uh, we don't want to be reductionistic with our Salvation. There's, there's a, a richness. In, in Galatians, Paul says we were, we were crucified with Christ. He's getting at this idea that when we believe in Christ, we are united to him in faith. And so our old self was crucified with Christ. And here he says that we've been raised with Christ. Certainly we can understand that. We've been made alive spiritually. Uh, as Christ was raised from the grave, so we have been raised spiritually. But the next part is, frankly... Uh, it's something I marvel at, and I'm not sure I completely understand it. It says that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. 
That in some sense, our union to Christ through faith means that even as Christ is seated at the right hand of God in heaven, ruling over all things, in some way, we're seated with him. So I'll just leave it there. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but it sounds pretty cool. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do we have any gift givers here? Like, I'm not big into love languages, but your love language is giving gifts. Anybody? All right. One person. Well, that's not my, my gift. My gift is not giving gifts. But occasionally in life, I have gone and gotten something for someone I care about. And it's been very exciting. And maybe you know the feeling, you, you get something for someone and you're really excited to see the look on their face, you're really excited for them to feel the expression of love because you've brought them this gift. And so for me, I just get really eager and I, I just want to demonstrate the love I have for this person. Which means I usually give it to them way early, so if it's Christmas, they're like, Hunter, it's August. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> But that feeling, the desire to show love, that's, that's what we're getting at here. That in the coming ages, God might demonstrate the immeasurable... I mean, look at this, look at this language here. It's, it's opulent. It's, it's superlative language. That God might demonstrate the far-surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you realize God wants to demonstrate you eternally the riches of his grace? The riches of his kindness to you in Christ Jesus. God is an infinite God. And for all eternity, he's going to be doing this for his beloved children. I'm convinced that we don't even understand the half of how good it is going to be to live in the presence of our God. To behold his face when our faith is turned to sight. And we're living as we were created to be with our God. So we've seen the miraculous work that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. In verses 8 to 10, Paul is going to bring out the relationship. He's going to bring out two implications. And and in this, we're going to discuss the relationship between grace and works. So pick up with me in verse 8. This is another very famous verse. He says, For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, we're going to talk about grace and works to finish off today. Now, verse 8, it's a helpful uh, stopping point for us to reflect upon everything we've covered In Ephesians chapter 2, we want to think about what is it that we have brought to the table with God and what is it that God has brought to the table in this economy of salvation. Well, uh, all of our contributions can be found in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Okay, so we are those who are dead in sin. We are the ones who are rebelling against God. We are the ones who uh, are in desperate need of rescue. On the other hand, in verses 4 to 7... If we are the ones who are dead in sin and in desperate need of rescue, if we are the ones who are lost at sea, God is the one who provides 
the rescue. God is the one who brings the grace. And so we come to our implications. The first implication is this. I'm not a mathematical person. My wife is a mathematical person. I was a music major. But I created an equation to help us understand this if you are a mathematical person. Here, here's the equation. Dead in sin plus made alive in Christ equals 100% God's grace. There you have it. You're welcome. You're welcome. So, what does is, what is Paul say? He says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is by grace. Remember, we're, we're spiritually dead. Christ makes us alive. And so there's nothing that we could have ever done to make ourselves alive. It is 100% God's grace here. Grace is unearned favor. There's nothing we could have done to merit it. There's nothing we could have done to earn it. And you say, well, I believed in Jesus Christ. Great. You grabbed hold of the life preserver. <laughs> you don't get to brag about it. Uh, you, you were made alive. You were made cognizant of your desperate situation before God. You got a life preserver and you grabbed it. Do you realize we're not saved by faith? I know that was really controversial. We're saved through faith. We are saved by Christ through his life and his death and his resurrection. That is why we are saved. And we receive the benefits of everything that Christ has done for us through the instrument of faith. Faith is the life preserver that you grab. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, faith is the hand of the beggar asking for coins. There's nothing meritorious in faith. Faith is the instrument through which we receive the salvation that Christ has earned on our behalf. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And yet, we recognize that we can't even express faith until God makes us alive. And so we see just how incredibly gracious the entire process is. We see just how incredibly gracious God has been to us. And it removes all pride, all merit, all self-congratulation from the equation. Now I mentioned I'm not a great gift giver. I'm also not a great gift receiver. Uh, maybe some of you know people like me. And you, you get a gift and it's a surprise it's not a birthday. It's not Christmas. You're not obligated to give the gift. But you bring someone a gift. And you're like, hey, I'm giving you this because I love you. Maybe you don't say that because it's a little aggressive. But that's the, that's the heart behind it, right? I'm giving you this because I love you. And they're like, well, at least what I'm thinking, I'm like, what is this person, what is this person doing? Like, what, what are they going to ask me for in a couple weeks? You know, like, and, and they're like, well, I didn't get you anything. And it's like, that's okay. Like, I got you a gift because I love you. Like, but you shouldn't have. It's like, I know, but I, I got you a gift. I want you to enjoy it. I'm like, I'm not watching your kids. <laughs> but you guys are good gift givers. You, you give the gifts because you want to. I'm just old and cynical. Well, Paul says here that it is the gift of God. I mean, look at this attitude of God towards his beloved children. Rich in mercy, abounding in love, 
wanting to demonstrate the, great, the riches of his grace to you in Christ Jesus. Don't dishonor the giver of the gift. Accept the gift freely. And recognize that your salvation is a gift from the God who loves you desperately. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself to be in Christ, he offers it to you today. Jesus said, believe in me. Repent from your sins. And you can be made a child of God. Accept the free gift. But recognize that it's a gift. Now, if Paul has brought out that it's a gift, he's going to uh, distinguish it still further and point out in verse 9 that though it is a gift of God, it is also not a result of works. So grace is by nature not something that can be earned. A gift is by nature not something that can be earned. And Paul's just going to bring that out here. Not a result of works so that no man may boast. Brothers and sisters, this is what separates Christianity from every other religious system. It is all about what God has done for us. It is not about what we do to make ourselves righteous before God. Uh, it's not about some sort of behavioral system whereby we can live a moral and productive and fulfilling life. It is that in a way, but that's not where we begin. Christianity is all about what God has done for us and the gift that he has brought us. This whole no notion of self-salvation, of working to make ourselves right with God, is crippling to your faith. It is crippling to the church. It is crippling to people. You see, when we miss the nature of grace, when we think that we can put God in our own debt, we miss everything. And we become judgmental and self-righteous and unloving. We become gossips. We become factious and divisive. We're condescending to those both in and outside of the church. And we act as if we had something to do with our standing before God. We go to the, the person who's still dead in his sins and transgressions. We, we go to the person who is still lost at sea doing whatever he can just to keep his head above water and we say to him, just keep swimming, buddy. <laughs> just try harder. Here's a, a list of swimming techniques you can use. The shore is 30 miles away. Why don't you, why don't you go ahead and, and try to get there? <laughs> and what this person needs is the life vest of God's grace. What this person needs is to cry out like blind Bartimaeus, son of David, have mercy on me. He needs to be made alive in Christ. Listen, if you're here today and you can honestly cry out, son of David, have mercy on me, that is a request Jesus Christ is always happy to grant. Do you really think your works impress God? Do you really think your works put the omnipotent creator of the universe, the one in whom all power resides, do you think he needs your works? Do you think there's any way you can put him in your debt? Listen, occasionally I will go and try to weed uh, what I will refer to as a front flower bed at my house. And occasionally my daughter, who's two, Aria, will come out and want to help daddy. 
and you know, I let her because she's cute and it's fun to be around her. But what happens when she begins weeding? What happens when she begins trying to help? She pulls weeds. She pulls mulch. She pulls flowers. And whatever else she can get her hands on, she is indiscriminate in her help. And see, the thing is, I never actually needed her help in the first place. And, and in fact, what she's doing isn't help in the first place. And that's the reality of our works before God. Uh, he says, apart from Christ, our works are filthy rags to him. We're not actually doing the thing we think we are when we're trying to make ourselves right with God. We're saying, I'm helping daddy, but in reality, we're, we're not doing anything. You see, no one will ever stand before God on judgment day and be declared righteous for anything they did. No one will ever look at God and say, yes, almighty creator of the universe, look at all this cool stuff that I did. Look how great I am. Works can never make us right with God. And that is good news because Christ can make you right with God. And it is far better to rely on what Christ has done than what we have done. So Paul just wants to make clear, it is a gift. It is not works. Then verse 10, Paul is going on to discuss the necessity of works. Surprisingly, after all of this denouncing of human achievement, after all of this denouncing the possibility of self-salvation, Paul comes back in verse 10 and teaches us of the necessity of works. He says this, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's strange. It doesn't seem like those two things should go together. Uh, good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I want to say five things about works. Five things about works. First of all, we've already established that works cannot save you. If you are working in order to make God accept you, if you are working to earn his grace, if you are working to earn his love, you're in a hopeless state. So where do works come in? Well, as we see, works are not what we do to earn God's acceptance. Works are what we do because we have been accepted by God. Works flow from grace. Works are the fruit of God's grace. Works are the evidence of a true faith. And so we're not working to earn God's favor. We're working from, a, from an attitude of gratitude because we're thankful for everything that God has already done for us in Jesus Christ. And Paul says here that we should walk in them. And what he means by that is that our works uh, should characterize our lives. Not that we're perfect, but that the believer in Christ, his life should be characterized by love for others, by love for God, by the way uh, he or she serves those around them. But even here, Paul points out the gracious nature of our works. He says God prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. So even in our works, we recognize that it is the grace of God spurring us on to love and good deeds. Brothers and sisters, I hope today that you can recognize the gracious nature of God's love toward you. My hope is that in approaching this text, we will see just how loving and gracious God has been to us who were once dead in our trans transgressions 
and sins. This is the foundation right here. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 is the foundation for Paul's argument for unity in the church. Because we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, and we've all received grace we didn't deserve. And I hope this is an encouragement to your soul this week as you go about your work. So let's close in prayer.